Hey you, welcome to Taylor's Shapers of Influence podcast, where we discuss the people, places, and things that, well, influence us. We'll dissect the integrated worlds of marketing, pop culture, and everything in between, from fashion to sports to entertainment. We're not only creating conversations, we're leading them too. Join us. Hello and welcome to Taylor's Shapers of Influence podcast here in New York City. I'm your host, Ross Lipschultz, alongside my co-host, Shade Ayodele. On this show, we'll be engaging consumers about all the influencers and creators across industries, across branding and marketing. And this specific series will be all about esports. So we thought, who better to have on the show today than Rekt Global CCO and Westwood One's Esports 30 podcast host, Kevin Naki, to tell us all about the inside uh, view of the booming world of gaming. Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you into the industry. Oh, geez. Um, I mean, I've been, some of my earliest memories are gaming. I've been gaming since I was an incredibly small child. Uh, I've been competitively gaming most of that time, whether it started as informal Mario Kart against my family, <laughs> which is really where I was the most competitive, if we're being real. Yeah. And, uh, or afterwards, trying to pursue being in a team or something like that with competitive titles in the early 2000s. Um, I realized that you know, maybe wasn't of that level, but mm-hmm. I did have a penchant for talking about things and yelling about things on camera, and so as Justin TV, which became Twitch TV, started rising up, I fired up a live stream. Eventually, one thing led to another. I got a job in the industry as a commentator, and uh, since then, I've had a pretty fun 10 years uh, doing everything from helping non-endemic brands enter the space to uh, producing TV shows to helping launch games, so it's been a, it's been a fun ride. Let's start there. Non-endemic brands entering the space. What have you seen as a, the most authentic way to get non-endemic brands into the space? You know, it depends on, first, how closely the brand aligns with the existing esports consumer habits, but then also what their objectives are. So my my temple client is State Farm. They're amazing to work with. They've been in esports. This is their third year now. And when they started, there was a Nielsen report that was out there that said that insurance and financial services, no one in esports wanted them. No one in (laughs) esports wanted them. And so year one, they were like, how about we don't try and just sell insurance policies and maybe let's just try for sentiment and engagement and make sure that people have a positive um, view of the brand overall, right? So that's entirely what we oriented towards. And we actually measured it through direct service through um, stuff we did through the leagues, we had pretty good results there, right? And then slowly over time, you start to introduce a little bit more creative that's uh, a bit more selly, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term. It actually gets people into the marketing funnels, things like that, right? You actually try to convert some users. But at first, just just sit back. Don't try to create some new creative piece of content that you think is going to wow the industry, align with something that's already out there that fans enjoy, make yourself an authentic, I hate that word, but... uh, um, sponsor of that space, get people to like your brand, and then you can start selling them over time. I've probably been working in the esports space for about four years, and so to hear that you've been here for ten years, where do you where do you think the certain rise and in interest in esports is coming from, and and what's the opportunity there for brands, and, and why is there this certain this, this sudden, I guess, interest from brands to get into the space. So this is why I'm glad I'm on a podcast that's doing kind of the business side of this, because yes. if I was on the core esports side, they'd like turn off my feed and get me out of the show, <laughs> because we're entertainment ultimately, right? We yeah. are entertainment. Sports is realizing that as well. That's why they're positioning their marketing and events more like entertainment, mm-hmm. and we should be doing the same. So the value is coming from live streaming, right? Yeah. So we, the, as trite as it is to say it, influencers are where the value's at. We understand now that individual content creators can reach niche audiences with crazy 
amounts of loyalty. Right. That loyalty is monetizable. We all get that right now. So where does esports go? Well, as a core competitive uh, league, there's only a couple of leagues that are actually ultimately going to succeed in the long term. Um, our company is pretty heavily invested into Riot's ecosystem through League of Legends and stuff like that. I'm a big believer on it. I think that's going to last for a long time because mm -hmm. they have sort of a unique blend of a game that's not losing their 100 million player unique subscriber base over time, right. um, but is also sort of reinventing themselves with cool influencer-driven content and stuff like that. So non-endemic brands that want to get involved in like specific leagues, there's a couple of them that are fine. I think there are some that are worth their time. Mm -hmm. But right now, go after influencers, chase content, align yourself with what people are already making that's really cool and reaches their audience. Mm -hmm. And do you see esports as kind of an arm of the gaming industry? Because a lot of the clients that we speak to, they, they see it as, oh, we have to have an esports strategy, but it's more of having a gaming strategy. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting because there's a hardcore subset of esports fans that are, of course, there for pure competitive integrity. This is really their sport. This right. is what they follow. They are super into it, right? But, of course, there's the larger gaming fan bases. More and more of them become sort of casual esports fans. That distinction is blurred, right? So, yeah, I think you're right. It is more of a gaming sort of... And, and if esports companies are kidding themselves if they don't think that their esports is a marketing expense for them and that they're getting a lot of the returns from those sort of hardcore whales that are watching every single match and buying every character skin and stuff like that, right? Um, so ultimately, I think that a lot of the revenue is going to come from those whales, and they just need to optimize more in that direction. And whales is the heavy spending people, just to make sure that's a yes. obviously more industry. 100%, 100%. <laughs> so yes, the, the, I mean, it, it's, it's, again, this is pretty widely known. It's not like this is a super hot take or anything right. like that. But, you know, your money you're getting from esports, I always think it's disingenuous for people to report, well, esports is losing money for all these developers and stuff like that. Well, yeah, maybe they're not getting the sponsorships to one-to-one -one pay for the production costs or something like that. But those couple million fans that are watching their esports circuit, those are the ones who are sitting out there and spending all the money on their skins, they see someone play a particular character and like, I gotta go out and get that character, my favorite player plays that, right? And so those are the people who are ultimately going to be making the most money for these developers. So you talked a little bit about influencers. Um, tell us a little bit more about that space. I know influencers have been booming on social media from Instagram to Twitter, but, but Twitch is an entirely different platform. The way that influencers are viewed is completely different. So someone who may not be as familiar with the space, can you talk a little bit more about like the influencer ecosystem as it relates to gaming and esports? Well, I mean, Twitch incentivized and monetized loyalty and the emotion and sort of the adrenaline rush you get by connecting with someone that you're a fan of, right? So subscribers were ridiculously good. So for those of you who don't know, of course, when people engage with an influencer or a streamer on Twitch, they have the option to spend five bucks a month. They can subscribe to them. A portion of those proceeds go to the streamer. And you, in most cases, are called out directly by that streamer. You get that sort of, you know, visceral rush of yeah. hearing them talk about you on screen. And so the unique thing I think about Twitch was that they built a social platform around that. Everyone always wonders, oh, it's a big social network. And you can't really manufacture that. You have to see what trends are out there. And Twitch essentially did create a social network and monetized it behind people having a connection to their individual influencers, right? And so it didn't take long for advertisers to go, wait a second, every single one of their fans is willingly saying, yes, I will spend money on your brand. I will spend on you as a person. Mm -hmm. So of course, they can try different products, whether it's in-game promotions, where they're working with developers or more conventional sponsorships, 
where non-endemic brands are coming in and giving them product and just getting right. traditional endorsements. Um, but of course, you know, once you establish that link in that huge data set that, wow, look, millions of people will spend money on influencers, it's pretty easy for advertisers to make the leap then too. Yeah, and it was interesting. We were at the LA Games conference a couple months ago, and one of the things they said is that fans actually like seeing those ads because they know it supports their favorite influencer, their favorite personality, which mm -hmm. is, I mean, it's completely different than any other sporting platform or even entertainment platform. Yeah, but it's also another hilarious thing to me to hear the hot takes of like, millennials don't buy into advertising. <laughs> they do. Podcasts have shown that they're doing it. Yeah. These niche audiences and influencers have shown that there's good conversion there. Advertisers are getting their ROI in some circumstances and stuff like that. So advertising still works. It's just you got to focus it through the right audience. Now. Yeah. And speaking of that, you know, you've worked with folks like Dr. Lupo and influencer mm -hmm. in that space. What is that experience like working with them? And how, it can, I mean, it's probably different for a lots of different people, but overall, how do you see that experience for brands? I mean, it's surreal, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Dr. Lupo's one of a kind, though, right? Sure. I mean, especially in our organization, he's got aggregate tens of millions of followers across all his platforms. He has transcended to, like, an actual level of celebrity, mm -hmm. and we can validate that because we field ridiculous opportunities for him on a regular basis, right? So media companies are starting to understand, and I've always sort of held the opinion that even if you don't believe that the content that these influencers are making is the best, what they are creating is a service that's sort of filtering and self-selecting who are great personalities, right? And so now media companies are going to be sort of the next wave of groups that are uh, grabbing on. And I'm saying that in particular because we've had some super interesting opportunities recently with Dr. Lupo, and we're actually going to be moving into production of like a TV-level show with him with major Hollywood partners and stuff like that. So, um, so for him, special circumstance, the guys that are at the top, they're real celebrities now. It's no different than just managing or working with traditional celebrities at this point in terms of their appearances. Um, but the smaller ones, that's where it's a little bit stranger because you actually have better ROI with your mid-tier influencers a lot of times. This isn't unique to Twitch. Instagram's finding this out too, right? Mm -hmm. Like the mid-level influencers have yeah. better conversion rates. There's no reason to spend the millions of dollars on the people who have 50 million followers because not all of them engage, right? And so the same thing happens there. And we are actually getting more requests at the team and influencer level for the mid-tiers. They're like, you know, you have Lupo. That's great. We understand it costs X amount of dollars for him to just wake up in the morning. Like, we're not going <laughs> to try and spend that sort yeah. of a budget right now, but we are interested in your folks who have maybe 300 concurrent Twitch viewers or 1,000 Twitch viewers on a regular basis. So we've been seeing a lot more pickup in advertiser attention on those mid-tier influencers. That's great. Um, so shifting gears a bit, what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions about the esports and, and gaming industry? Oh boy, I asked before, you know, how many hours do we have to talk, but uh, here really, <laughs> how many hours do we have to talk? I think the biggest misconception right now is actually internal by a lot of the hardcore esports fans of their own industry. Um, I think that there's, when you have a, an industry that's sort of nascent and early on, the overwhelming voice are the hardcore viewers, right? So they're the people who are, they were there through thick and thin, they've been there for years, they're gonna be yeah. there for years. If esports somehow crashes at a big level, they're still gonna be there organizing their tournaments, mm -hmm. watching their tournaments and stuff like that, right? But to sort of deny the effects of having major entertainment partners who wanna come in, and there's the fear that like they're trying to take over, yeah. and they're trying to buy the whole scene out from underneath us or something like that. I don't deny, there's probably some malicious people who do wanna try and 
do that, right? But for the most part, with a lot of the people that I've worked with, that's just mm-hmm. not the case. Yeah. They understand that this is a rocket ship. They want to align themselves with it. They want to understand how they can be impactful and grow in the long term for it, right? So I think internally, some folks in esports need to understand, well, instead of being in opposition to a lot of these partners, work with them, find compromises, understand what would make some of these events more palatable for them to invest in. Externally, regarding gaming and esports right now, I think there's a couple of different things. The biggest one is that everyone thinks a competitive game can just become an esport, right? Mm-hmm. And without getting too far into the weeds of like particular games or anything like that, it just can't. And there has to be a certain period of time that a developer has to allow a game to sort of live and see if it can stand on its own two feet for a mm-hmm. while, you know what I mean? And there's a tendency right now by developers to think, ah, I have this competitive title coming out, it's going to be the next big esport, it's going to no. be amazing, they position their game as such, they invest a ton of resources in a competitive circuit, and they sort of miss the forest from the trees, realizing that esports is entertainment at its core, and you don't necessarily just want to jump into your hardcore fan base before a title sort of proves itself long term. You need to make sure that you're investing in the community, the content around it, stuff like that. I want to get back to something about you said about the the events, the Mm -hmm. hosting the events, being a part of that thing. We worked with Overwatch when they launched the Overwatch League, and they had their first event at the Grand Finals. What do you see on those live events? What's that experience like for both big esports endemics and then the non non maybe someone who's more casual but is seeing that wow this is a crazy huge event it's just as big as any of the big championships events are the trickiest thing in the world for me to figure out because major arena finals always do well. They sell out, sure. big crowd, you can mm-hmm. do traditional sort of non-endemic fan activations that aren't too dissimilar to what you'd see at major traditional sports events like the mm-hmm. Super Bowl or something like that. Smaller yeah. in scope, of course, but it's the same thing. Yeah. It's you know, it's ultimately the same thing at the end of the day. Um, smaller events, though, are such a tough sell to me right now. They just are. You have you know, um, Overwatch or uh, League of Legends can sell out 20,000 seats in an arena in five seconds for their finals, but they have trouble filling, um, you know, 200 seats in their home arena sometimes in a week-to-week match. And it's a different value prop because fans, in contrast to sports, where for a long time you had to pay for access to sports, whether it be through cable or the big networks didn't provide everything or you needed to pay for supplementary access. For eSports fans, you just didn't have to do that, right? Whether it was on Twitch or YouTube, you got all the content for free. You could have multiple views. There were sometimes different streams you could watch at once. There was no compelling reason for the consumer to sort of open up um, their wallets and actually put money towards these, right? So smaller events, I think, sort of suffer from that because if I already have a penchant for sort of, you know, just sitting home and playing video games all the time mm-hmm. and watching a stream on the side, am I really going to be compelled to go see a regular season match of a team if I know they're playing every week or something like that? Maybe not. And so I think there is a problem with sort of the second tier events, and they're trying to figure it out. I think um, the one upshot of what uh, 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 Overwatch League and Call of Duty League are doing with their home stands and home series right now is they are exploring, well, which markets can sort of sustain a local fan base? And we have some personal experience in this. So the second Call of Duty uh, event was held in London. Mm -hmm. Um, We own one of the franchise slots. It's the London Royal Ravens, so we actually put on our first event. We got to see it firsthand and see what the fans were like. And honestly, in our arena, it was crazy. Like, they had the full-on, like, English football chants going. They were messing with people. They were yelling the whole time. Um, Our players were sitting back there, and they were part of some of the biggest Call of Duty orgs before this, playing at huge events. And they were, like, straight up, even though this event only had a couple thousand people compared to some bigger uh, arenas we've been, we've never had an audience like this. Like, we've never been in a place that is really, like, a home audience. 
audience and they're really pulling for us and they have that sort of energy. So I think there's something there. I'm not necessarily sold that the local market franchises are like the answer in the long term. Mm -hmm. I believe more at sort of a regional and global level if you're trying to mm -hmm. do region-based stuff. Um, but I think it's interesting, right? How do you engage those more local fan bases? How do you get them to come out to events? I think there's a lot of experimenting that's happening right there and it needs to be figured out because big events are boring. We know how they work. Mm -hmm. They work like traditional sports. Yep. So what happens with those mid-tier events? I don't know. You've given us a lot to think about. I think, um, so let's just say I'm a brand hopping into the space for the first time. There's so much. There's events, as you talked about. There's teams. There's leagues. There's influencers. Um, if you were a, consult a consultant for me, a new brand, where do I start? How do I get... How do I get into this space? And let's just say I'm a non-endemic brand. Yeah, you know, I think there's a few different ways to go about it, sort of depending on where you want um, your your priorities to lie. So for some brands who I can't convince, hey, you really do need to warm up to this audience first. You need to go for more of a sentiment play. For those brands that are like, uh-uh, my only KPI is how many sales am I making this year? What's my conversion ratio into my marketing funnel? Like, uh, okay, <laughs> let's go ahead and buy media, you know? Yeah, let's align yeah. ourselves with uh, with the launch of a big title or something like that, build buzz around something, do one interesting creative uh, activation with them, and just pour money into media, right? It's boring, but if all you want to do is convert and get engagements into a marketing yeah. campaign, it's probably what you got to do, right? I like to work with the ones that sort of understand and have a longer-term vision yeah. of the scene, which is even if you don't spend millions and millions and millions of dollars year one, you're willing to... Start slow, gain trust with the audience, build that investment over time once you have that trust, things like that. Like I'll go back to the example I used of State Farm before. Um, at first, like I said, no, everyone was like, well, why does State Farm space in this? Wow. And now they are basically viewed as important to the scene as any endemic who invests into that space. And we have the numbers and data to prove that, right? Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then it's a lot easier at that stage to say, okay, well, guess what? State Farm is a product, too. Here's a little bit of it. Why don't yeah. you go try it out, right? But if you do that at first, Gamers, they don't care. They're just, yeah. they're just going to ignore it, you know? So that's interesting that you say that because it sounds like State Farm invested early. They kind of, ga not gambled, but they experimented and it pays off for them later. Do you think there's another undervalued asset where brands can come in and invest in now, maybe in your opinion, that could be something that could pay off later? You know, it's weird because it's, it's, there are a couple of opportunities, one of which is taking a chance on something in the content space. I feel there's a lot of room for higher quality content in esports mm. right now. Again, the influencers are attracting a lot of attention, and even the top, top, top ones, with the exception of maybe Ninja, who literally walks into a professionally run man studio every single day and stuff like that, even your huge influencers that are making tens of millions of dollars, they're still broadcasting out of their you know room in their house, essentially, mm. right? So they're creating interesting content which appeals to sort of a niche, but I don't think that that's the best content mm -hmm. that can be created, right? So creating good content, though, of course, as we know from every Hollywood company that's ever been created, is very difficult difficult to get yep. right. You know, you're going to take some risks that are going to be wrong. You're going to take some risks that all of a sudden become runaway hits and are worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? So I think if you have a real creative group that truly understands the content space and how to position higher quality content that still feels authentic to the gaming audience, who's used to consuming just, you know, 
someone out of their basements broadcasting video yeah. games and things like that, I think they're, they're going to really do well for themselves. Um, I think the other one goes back to what I talked about before with events. I think there is a way to make second-tier esports events work. I think a lot of it doesn't lie in. I think you see a lot of organizations that are putting up like, oh, we're going to have like a halftime musical act, kind of like sports does or something like mm-hmm. that, or oh, we're going to have X event alongside. Eh, none of that really works, right? I do think, though, that larger, like turning these regional events into larger gaming festivals and tournaments where you have like the amateur scene come up and play a big tournament alongside sort of like marquee pro matches and mm-hmm. there's a gaming festival alongside that maybe in markets that don't typically get those but you're sort of the brand who is presenting that to this audience and um, I think that's really compelling right mm-hmm. and I think that there's some space there um, but apart from that Honestly, I think there's interesting space to do in the technology world, too, because we, in contrast to sports, can pull real-time data from all of these games. And even though that data is owned and protected by developers, it's not like it's open access. It's not like I can just go to a football field and put down you know, sensors on the ground and measure certain things. I actually have to get permission from the developer sure. and mm-hmm. something like that. But if you can tell advertisers, like, whoa, I've pulled gaming data and I know how someone behaves in-game and I can extrapolate what that means to a marketer in terms of their behavior, like, I know you play X character in a game or something like that, that means you're more likely to buy a certain product or something along those lines. I think there's a lot of money to be made there, but uh, I don't think anyone's really figured that out yet. Well, you've given us a lot to digest today, <laughs> Kevin, and we really appreciate the time and for joining us on Taylor Shepard's of Influence. Um, so for our listeners at home, um, let them know how can they follow you, connect with you, and, and keep up with everything you're doing. Yeah, I have a much smaller presence than I used to <laughs> when I was doing things on camera all the time. Honestly, just Twitter, at Kevinaki. It's my name. It's where I engage the most. It's where I answer every tweet that comes into me and stuff like that. So, um, obviously, if uh, you, you, you enjoyed this and you want to listen to the <laughs> podcast I do, um, it's Esports 30. It's on every podcast platform you're on, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, all that sort of stuff. So, um, give it a listen. I'd appreciate it. Cool. Thank awesome. you so much. Thank yeah. you. And thank you, guys for listening we'll talk to you soon well that wraps up this episode of taylor's shapers of influence to learn more about what we do at taylor you can find us at taylorstrategy.com looking for more episodes of the podcast find us wherever you stream stuff we're on itunes and other major streaming platforms and be sure to follow us on instagram and twitter at taylor strategy thanks for stopping by and tuning in peace